Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. My name is Kev Lotchen and I'm joined today by the delightful noise of news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Good morning. And editorial assistant Ian Todd. Hello. This special festive episode, we're taking a little look at the 12 months past and some of its biggest stories. We've got some choice interviews lined up and we're going to take a sneaky glimpse at 2018. Plus, I've got a special Game of the Year edition of News Bingo for these guys in the studio and for you on listeners at home. But first, 2017. Good year, bad year, guys? <laughs> <laughs> There's been, certainly been a lot going on. Uh, quite a few major discoveries have come out. It also feels like it's been very much a year of um, marking the calendar in the sense of anniversaries and a couple of goodbyes. Yeah, there's mm. there's been a couple of pretty big anniversaries. Uh, Sputnik comes to mind. Sputnik, and then uh, less comes to mind, but quite sad, Laika the dog. Yes, poor Laika. Mm. I was actually really surprised. I hadn't quite sort of realised just how soon after Sputnik they sent up Laika. It was like two months. It was, uh, was it Khrushchev who was really keen to capitalise yes. on that, uh, kind of the the uh, the propaganda value of it, and so like, straight away, right, put another one up. Yeah. Like, um, like, is that one of those situations where they, they did get good science out of that, or was that just kind of... Uh, I don't want to say PR stunt because that kind of tri- trivializes, you know. The, the main, the, the main thing that uh, Sputnik proved that they they could get something into orbit and that worked, um, and Leica proved that you could send a living creature into orbit and they would survive. Unfortunately, she didn't come back, but mm. they, they they proved that you we could one day send people into space. Mm. Also, Cassini, we have to mention as well. Yes, that was. A fond farewell. Yes, it had yeah. done its mission. I know. I remember um, just before the the finale, um, NASA released this kind of this quite nice video, and it was kind of like it showed you know images and the highlights and all the kind of you know quite sad piano music. And at the end, <laughs> when it was kind of showing you know um, the animation of what it was go- what it might look like to see Cassini deorbit into Saturn's atmosphere, I actually felt a lump in my throat. I was actually, oh, this is actually quite sad mm, <laughs> for yeah. Cassini. It was around uh, Saturn for 13 years, so that's, you know, it's a good good chunk of my life it's been up there. Mm. Mm. Uh, also, we've had the 50th anniversary of the Saturn V rocket. And Voyager. And Voyager, Can, yeah. Can't forget Voyager. 40 years of Voyager. Yeah. Um, we, we spoke to quite a lot of cool people this year in terms of Voyager, um, obviously, when we were putting together the uh, special edition, the Voyager special edition that came out um, around the same time as the... Uh, as the anniversary. Um, really interesting to kind of go back and talk to those planetary scientists mm. like um, Carolyn Porco and Bonnie Baratti, um, the, the people who actually made um, some of the incredible discoveries like uh, volcanicity on Io and things like that. Um, yeah, the, the kind of the, just how impressive that mission was and is. Had, and had, it is, yeah, yeah and it's is. still going Con- inconceivably. It's been flying for two-thirds of the entire space age. Yeah, it's especially when you think about it, it's, you know, sort of probably your washing machine has more programming power than it does. It does. <laughs> so, I mean, one thing we talked about for Camino is the kind of the weirdest things you guys had discovered over the past year. And the weirdest thing I discovered, I thought, was uh, is related to Voyager because I did quite a lot of work on that special edition. And you can't remember anything, the Voyager space car. Every time it sends data out, it has to wipe itself, because its brain is basically an eight-track tape player. <laughs> so this thing that is, like, you know, is discovered so much, mm. it, it, it's got a really bad short-term memory, and it's uh, got less 
It's got 240,000 times less computing power than an average iPhone. Yeah, it's it's one of those weird kind of everybody thinks that like the space age and all of these space probes are the cutting edge, like the bleeding edge of technology. But most of the time, by the time that you've designed it and built it and put it into orbit, it's 20 years out of date. Well, exactly that, because you're right, it was in 1970. Probably ni- it launched in 1977, which means it was being built like five years before yeah. that. So mm. this is 1972 technology here. Wow. And still working. It's amazing. And still going. I, um, I remember... They built them to last in I think those it was, days. It, was it you who spoke to Suzanne Dodd? Yes. And it was in her interview, she was saying how they have to kind of take decisions to kind of take little bits of it offline one at a time <laughs> and to see how much they can eke out yes, of it. Yes, I think they said they lose about four watts of power a year and it's sort of, sort of sitting there going, it's like, does, does that heater really need 12? <laughs> or will 10 do? <laughs> 10 off and hope. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, so what about you guys? What's the weirdest thing you've learned this year? Uh, well, I always kind of, I think... As the discovery of exoplanets is becoming a more um, uh, common occurrence, uh, you just constantly get these exoplanets being discovered that um, just have these crazy properties. So I, I've been kind of looking at, like there were like two, two hot Jupiters uh, discovered over the past year that kind of blew my mind. Um, and a hot Jupiter is so-called because it's about the same size or larger than Jupiter, but it orbits its star uh, a lot closer than Jupiter does to the star in our solar system, uh, the sun. Um, Thanks for clarifying that. Okay. <laughs> Just in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> um, so in June, there was announ- the announcement of a, a Jupiter-like exoplanet that is hotter than most stars. So it's called Kelt uh, 9b, and it's 2.8 times more massive than Jupiter, even though it's only half as dense. Um, and they think this is because um, extreme radiation from its host star um, has caused the planet to expand like a balloon. Um, but the planet is tidally locked, which means that the same side always faces the star, just like uh, the moon around around Earth. Sure. Um, and this means that one side of the planet um, is in constant perpetual daylight, which means that the surface temperature is about 4,500 degrees Celsius. To put that into in comparison, our sun is 5,500 degrees Celsius. Wow. Um, and they think that also um, it's, it's possible that the planet could be leaving like a kind of tail in its wake. <laughs> what, even uh, like a, a cometary Yeah, that, that kind of thing, yeah. Thing. Yeah. Um, and the other interesting thing is that it uh, it orbits the star perpendicular to its spin axis. Mm. So that would be like if you pick, if you could picture our solar system and all the planets going around it, that would be like uh, a planet going perpendicular, like 90, 90 degrees to the way. But it's like Uranus, yeah. right? Spinning. It spins yeah. on its side. Yeah, yeah, exactly that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and then in October, there was another hot Jupiter announced, which snows uh, titanium dioxide, which is a uh, common ingredient in sunscreen mm. <laughs> so uh, kind of uh, press officers had a field day you know kind of with, the, with this headline that uh, there's a planet that where it rains sunscreen and is that like close to its star like is that useful you go stand there and you stand in the snow <laughs> and then you're kind of you're fine or? exactly that's what I was thinking because yeah it, it's another hot Jupiter and um, it's called Kepler uh, 13AB and it's also tidally locked so on its day side temperatures can reach two 2,700 degrees Celsius, um, and they think that um, on its dark side, that's when um, titanium oxide gas is carried to the colder nighttime side. It condenses and then rains as snow. So I was thinking, so does that kind of cancel cancel it out? So if you're on that planet, even though it's 2,500 degrees Celsius, you're fine because it's raining sunscreen? 
I, I think you might have a slight other problems if it's two and a half thousand degrees Celsius. <laughs> so Ian's picked out uh, some nice exoplanets and imaginary airs. What have you got for us? Um, well, I've, I've got a couple of things. Um, the first one was in April of this year, the Event Horizon Telescope attempted to take an image of the uh, central black hole in our galaxy, uh, Sagittarius A star. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've only just managed to get all of the data for that back because it turns out one of the, the, the sort of real crunch points in when you're doing these kinds of like massive things is actually getting everything to the same place at the same time. I kind of had this picture that there was all these, you know, like high-speed networks transferring data all over the place, but actually the, the thing that was really difficult was getting the data out of the South Pole because it got snowed in. <laughs> so whether or not we've managed to image the, the black hole at the centre of our galaxy was snowed in at the South Pole for about six months. Um, <laughs> and me, being the kind of person that I am, uh, tried to work out what the, the maximum bandwidth that you could get between <laughs> um, the South Pole and MIT, where everything was being processed. Okay. And, and the best one that I could come up with was 2 million gigabytes per second which is an Airbus A380 stuffed with SD cards. <laughs> and if anybody can find a better bandwidth than that, then please let us know. Um, and the, my next bit is phrased as a news bingo question, special bonus one. You're going to get one, Kev, now. Oh. <laughs> um, it, later this, this month, later in December... Um, Elon Musk and SpaceX are planning on um, launching their Falcon Heavy rocket for the first time. What are they planning on putting on it, on it as a test payload? So I do know this because it comes up later on. But <laughs> not in his bingo. I was okay. we'll get on to that. So, Ian? Oh, that sounds really familiar. Sounds like, sounds like we discussed this in the past few weeks. <laughs> no. I can give you a clue. No, I can't remember. He's going to put on it a Midnight Cherry Tesla Roadster playing... Space Oddity. So he's going to launch his uh, yeah. car. Yeah, considering that on the uh, the dragon they put a wheel of cheese, hmm. which apparently is a re- some some reference I don't understand, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's one of those things. If you're going to run a space company, why not launch a car into the orbit of Mars, which uh, is the plan? So, so I, I am going to um, counter news bingo you. Yes. Do you know, this comes from a Twitter kind of debate he has, do you know what book he's going to put in the glove box of said car? No. With a towel. I'm is it going to be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Indeed it is. Yes. Because I think the Wheel of Cheese was a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, okay. But I don't, I I don't, don't know, know it that well, apparently. So. <laughs> um, shall, we, uh, shall we move on? Shall we move on to some of the bigger news items of 2017? Yes, indeed. Um, well, I mean... We just kind of discussed how interesting exoplanets are and kind of hot Jupiters. But, um, yeah, a a real breakthrough, I guess, in uh, exoplanet discovery and hunting came in in February, which seems like a long time ago now. Yeah, the uh, discovery of TRAPPIST-1, which is a planetary system about 39 light years away from our solar system. Kind of interesting that you're talking about, like, putting cheese, um, sending cheese into space. Uh, TRAPPIST-1, the telescope is called TRAPPIST, and it was actually named after um, a famous uh, style of Belgian beers. I mean, the acronym is Transiting Planets and Planetismal Small Telescope, but uh, the team that um, led, led the discovery um, are um, some uh, Belgian astronomers at the University of Liège, and uh, they named it after their, their favourite style of beer. That must have been a good night when I decided that. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how they celebrated. Hmm. <laughs> um, 
And the, the interesting thing about uh, this discovery is that it's actually seven kind of Earth-sized rocky planets uh, in orbit around it. They've all got kind of like sizes and masses like uh, Earth and Venus, and they're rocky, so not just discovering like ridiculously hot, gassy planets that are massive. It's kind of uh, the idea that we can that we found so many potentially habitable planets, um, some of which um, are, are could be in the so-called Goldilocks zone, meaning that uh, liquid water could, could pool on their surfaces. But that's the crux of it, right? It's not just we found a Earth-like planet, seven of them. Mm. All seven are Earth-like? Yeah, I mean, in terms of their, their size and masses, they're, yeah, similar to Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the really interesting thing about it is that it is the orbits, because their orbits, I think like the innermost planet orbits, its year is like an Earth day and a half, and then the outermost planet orbits in 20 days. So they orbit really, really close to the star. But the reason that they are potentially habitable is because the star is so cool. It's like an ultra-cool red dwarf star. So it's almost like they kind of, the, the proximity of their orbits is cancelled out by the fact that the star is a lot cooler. So we think that they could receive like um, light similar to the light that the planets in our solar system receive. Huh. And they're, they're closer to uh, their star than Earth is, say. Yeah. Hours. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, which you can kind of tell by the, by the orbits, the fact that you know it's able to orbit in, in the you know the innermost planet is able to orbit in the in the uh, period of like one and a half Earth days. They give in the outermost, it's only like twenty days. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Just, yeah. But they, the uh, scientists who discovered this, they've been running uh, models to kind of try and simulate the orbits of the planets and then kind of work out the relationship to each other and, and how the uh, system might develop over time. And when they were initially running the uh, simulations, it didn't work. Like, the planets kept kind of crashing into each other. But then they observed um, the TRAPPIST-1 system a bit longer, and they, they worked out that, that there's this kind of really interesting resonance between the orbits of the planets. So it's like, um, so for every two orbits that the outermost planet, TRAPPIST-1H, makes, the other six worlds um, go around it three, four, six, nine, fifteen, and twenty-four times, respectively. That's a bit weird. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of resonance, this kind of nice, neat ratio that kind of stabilizes uh, the system, because mm -hmm. it's about like they think it's it, it could be up to like twice as um, old as our solar system. All right. Mm -hmm. um, and they think that that's the reason that it survived for so long is because it's got this kind of cool, like stable, resonant orbits between the planets. So it's pretty awesome. It's pretty pretty cool discovery. Um, but obviously, you know, um, there's only so much we can actually learn from the various releases. Um, so, yeah, the uh, first interview uh, that we're going to be presenting today is I, I spoke to uh, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, um, who's a planetary scientist who's part of the team that are uh, currently carrying out follow-up observations of the TRAPPIST-1 system um, with the Hubble Space Telescope. And I just I began by asking her why she believes the discovery of TRAPPIST-1 system is so important. Uh, the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 system is so important because these worlds are our best chance to study alien Earth-sized planets for the next decade, at least. Um, what I think has really ca captured the imagination is that these seven Earth-sized worlds are all in one system. Uh, the planets are the best targets that we have for these rocky worlds. And having seven of them orbiting just one star is such a great opportunity for scientists to learn about these planets' environments and how a star can affect such a system, because we can use them as individual kind of test tubes for 
what happens to a planet's atmosphere if it's really close to its star? What happens if it's in this liquid water habitable zone? And what happens if it's too far out? So it's like this really great kind of laboratory test that we can do that's out there in space. And what do we actually know so far about the, the planets orbiting uh, TRAPPIST-1? So we already know quite a lot about these planets, considering that they're 40 light years away. Because the planets transit the star, we can actually get um, the, the radius of all of the planets relative to the size of the star. And because of that, we can also understand how they're inclined relative to us. Um, but because there's seven of them so close to each other, they're pulling on each other. All of them are pulling on each other and they're all pulling on the star. And we can use something called transit timing variations to work out the mass of each of these planets. So if we've got the radius that we've measured from the transit and we've got the mass measured from these transit timing variations that we're seeing, we can actually work out what the bulk density of those planets is. And we actually do know that all of these worlds orbiting TRAPPIST-1 are likely to be rocky planets. And so, considering that, that, that they're rocky planets, um, do we know whether or not any of them are likely to be able to support human life or indeed already support um, some, some kind of life, you know, uh, be it microbial? So we don't know if any of these are actually habitable yet, and we do not know whether there's any life on them whatsoever. But what we're doing is we're using the Hubble Space Telescope at the moment, actually, to look at these worlds and try and work out what their atmospheres are like. So there's uh, lots of different things that we can look for. And right now with the Hubble Space Telescope, we're trying to rule out the fact that these planets are more Neptune-like. So we're trying to rule out that they have this big, puffy hydrogen-helium atmosphere. And we've actually done that for two of the planets in the system already, and we're working on the rest of them right now. Uh, and then in the future, so with the, the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope in 2019, we're actually going to learn even more about these planets, really get down and try and understand what their atmospheres are made of. And that's really important for habitability. But right now, what we understand is the temperature that these planets are likely to be. And from that, we can try and work out what their environments might be like and what we should be looking for. Just more, more generally, um, obviously, when we're looking for exoplanets, we, we, we search for a star because a star may have a, a planet you know, transiting in front of it. Is, is there a specific kind of star that we, that we look for in order to, to try and discover exoplanets? The search for exoplanets is not limited to any one type of star, but some stars make it easier for us to find exoplanets. So exoplanets have actually been discovered around all types of stars, from the biggest and hottest stars to the smallest and coldest, like the TRAPPIST-1 star. Um, and if you want to look for smaller planets uh, using the transiting method, then it actually makes it much easier if you're looking at a smaller star. Because what we're actually measuring is the relative size of that planet to the size of the star. So if you have a smaller star, then you can look for a smaller planet because it will have the same signal as a large star with a large planet. So looking at these smaller stars makes it easier to look for these smaller planets. But it's not just smaller planets we're really interested in. We're trying to learn about all different types. So we need to look at all different types of stars. And stars like our sun, which is really important because we know that stars like our sun can host Earth-sized planets as well. So we really need to try and understand all of these different types of environments. And so once a, an exoplanetary system is actually discovered, what's the next step? What do, we, what do astronomers then then do in order to find out more about it? We always want to know more about planets that we discover. That's the fun part for me. 
we, we already are doing follow-up of the TRAPPIST-1 planets with the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, what we're doing is we're looking at the starlight that shines through the planet's atmosphere before it reaches the telescope. So as the planet passes in front of the star, it transits it. Some of that starlight is actually going to be filtered through the planetary atmosphere before it reaches us. And imprinted on that light is the signatures of different molecules that make up the atmosphere. And the wonder of nature is that each molecule has its own unique fingerprint. And we can look for these in that light uh, and try and work out what the atmosphere is made of. That's really the first step that we're doing, trying to understand these planets. But as I said before, the radius and the mass give us the bulk density. And that's really the first step in characterizing these planets. Absolutely fantastic. Thank, thank you very much for, for speaking to me, uh, Dr. Wakeford. Thank you. <laughs> One of the other big discoveries that was made this year was the first ever direct observation of the source of gravitational waves. Gravitational waves are basically ripples in space-time that um, are generated basically when something, pretty much everything, creates gravitational waves, but we can only really appreciate them when it's something really, really big happens, like the uh, collision of two black holes or two neutron stars, something like that. And we first saw one back in 2015 that was picked up by the LIGO detector. Uh, that's the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, of which there are two observatories over in America. And in August this year, something a bit more interesting happened, which is they didn't just detect the gravitational wave, they detected, they managed to pick up the light from from the thing that actually created this, uh, which was a huge boon because it meant that they could do a lot more follow-up research on on what exactly it was that caused this wave. And that's a first, right? I've never seen never the light seen associated with Never seen the light before, which is, is to be expected because previously we've seen uh, the... The collisions that were seen were black hole mergers. But this one wasn't. This one wasn't. This was two neutron stars. And when two neutron stars collide, they create something that's called a kilonova, which is, as the the name might suggest, is quite bright. <laughs> <laughs> I'm it's, guessing big nova. <laughs> yes, very big nova. Um, many, many times brighter than your regular supernova. And it lasted a couple of days, and it was observed by pretty much every telescope that in the world that could get onto it, and some that weren't in the world, some of the space telescopes as well. Um, it was, you know, it was the big thing that everybody had been waiting for. Um, so they managed to do, they, they're still sort of like processing all of the data that happened. Um, and one of the things that's that's really great about this is it happened when LIGO was linked to a third observatory called Virgo, which is over in Italy. And it, it was quite strange, though, because even though... LIGO detected it, it's Virgo didn't, and that was what helped them pinpoint where it was. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, the, because uh, LIGO, you have two two observatories picking it up over in America, hmm. and they managed to give you a sort of fairly big area of sky where this thing might have been coming from. But because they had the non-detection over at Virgo, that said, well, there's only a certain plane where we wouldn't have detected this thing. So it must be in there. And that was how they tracked it down, huh. because it wasn't seen rather than it was seen. So process of elimination. Yes. So do you mean because of the position of the observatories, mm. you could say, well, this one, 
the <laughs> the observers in Italy didn't see it yes. because the Earth was yeah. pointing away. It's because yeah. usually you need at least uh, three points of reference, mm. is what it's called, um, to be able to to pinpoint pretty much anything, whether it's on the sky or in space, you know, to do triangulation, you need to have three points of reference. Um, and so that's why it was really important to get Virgo online and working with LIGO. But I just thought it was quite strange that we found it because one of them didn't find it, which was quite odd. Mm. One of the interesting things I think about the gold gravitational wave, and because the, the first um, discovery was announced in, was it February 2016? Uh, 2015. Yeah, Okay. Oh, no, it, was, it was discovered in September 2015. It was announced in 2016, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like the, the first exoplanet discovery, which I think was like 1992. And then mm. just, there's just like a boom, and then it, it, it always just picks up. So like this year, mm. I actually kind of found myself, whenever there was a gravitational wave announcement, because I think there were maybe like two or three this year, mm. and two of them were black hole collisions. You kind of just, I caught myself thinking, oh, it's just another black hole collision. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's because they've been. It took thirty years for the technology to get to the point where the detectors could pick these up, and these occurrences don't appear to be exactly rare. It's just that we've only just got to the point where they are, where the technology can switch on to be able to detect them. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. I remember what you mean, though, and there was definitely a, a swing in the last couple of years where every exoplanet announcement was really exciting. Mm. And now mm. it's like, okay, one more on the tally, almost. <laughs> mm. It's like you mm. only really hear about them if it's the biggest yeah. or the brightest or it's raining sunscreen. Or it takes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, it takes something special, like Trappist one, where you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's uh, something special. Um, one thing I wanted to pick up on with gravitational waves is mm. you've got a new buzzword from that discovery now, multi-messenger mm. astrophysics. Multi-messenger astrophysics, yes. Uh, basically, what that means is any kind of astronomy when you are looking at more than one observation sort mm. of thing. So you're looking at, at light in all of its various guises. Um, so everything from radio, visible, gamma x-rays, all of those. Sure. Um, uh, you've also got neutrino. Observatories are cropping up all over the world, which are usually giant tanks of water that can pick up um, these flashes of neutrinos when, when something big happens. Uh, you've got gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. You've got cosmic ray observatories, which are looking for the, the, the actual like heavy particles from cosmic rays. And it's when you put all of these different ways of doing things together that you can get a full picture of what's going on inside of these really extreme and exotic um, physics events that are happening out in space. Ideally, we'd use multi-messenger astrophysics all the time, wouldn't we? But mm. it's Yeah, it's one of those things that you, you want to be able to use all the time, but it's just, it's, it's only the sort of major events, unfortunately, that at the moment that we can get enough of this to be able to pick up, because it's really hard to pick up gravitational waves and neutrinos. Maybe in the future, though, we can be doing it for, you know, a solar flare on the sun and being able to tick up pick up the gravitational impact of that, but not for a long, long time. <laughs> um, as I believe you spoke to someone about gravitational waves. I did. Um, I got to talk to David Reitze, who is the executive director over at LIGO, and knew all about the events that were going on there this year. So, David, tell us, for those of us, those listening at home who don't know what a gravitational wave is, what is a gravitational wave? A gravitational wave is a ripple in space-time. That's 
the easiest way to think about it. Uh, technically, it, it's it's a little more complicated than that. It's a it's a fluctuation. It's literally a stretching and squeezing of 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 space, and and these are very difficult to detect. And they come about from any object that's accelerating. So if I have two two black holes, for example, that are orbiting around one another, they're emitting uh, gravitational waves. That the analogy that that people use, which is not so bad, is um, if I if I take a stone and drop it in a pond. All right, you can think of the the surface of the pond as space as a coordinate system. And um, when there's no stone there, you know, if, if it's really calm, the you know the, the surface is very very calm and very flat. But it, it, when a stone comes in, the the stone perturbs the uh, the pond, the surface of the pond, which is what the masses do to space time, and that produces ripples that flow outward. So so these are literally dynamic fluctuations in space and time. And if you were to put rulers down, all right, near where you have gravitational waves being produced, uh, the rulers would actually stretch the coordinate system would actually stretch and compress so it's a pretty unique phenomenon mm. and gravitational waves have been in the news a lot in 2017 um what what big news has happened and come out in the last year there have been a number of, of major discoveries uh, with um, gravitational waves with LIGO uh, and also the Virgo Observatory, which is in um, uh, Pisa, Italy, outside of Pisa, Italy. Uh, first, we've discovered some more black holes. Uh, the first detection that we had in 2016 was the, the discovery, the detection of two really massive uh, black holes that were uh, orbiting around one another and collided with one another. We've seen a, a, a few more of those in 2017, but I think the big scientific news was the observation of two neutron stars, a binary neutron star system that um, basically collided and merged and produced uh, not only gravitational waves, which is what we saw, um, but also uh, a, a great light show. I mean, the, the, the way I describe it is it's, it's the most spectacular fireworks show in the universe. And this was an event that was captured uh, by um, approximately 70 telescopes, and I include both ground-based telescopes and also uh, satellites, uh, space-based telescopes, too. So, so it was a really, really fundamental and, uh, and remarkable event, and we're still trying to understand some of the, the data. We still don't have a complete picture of, of what happened, but it was, a, it was a really great event. And if I can add one more thing to that, the other big thing that happened is uh, um, three of of our uh, founders who work in the LIGO laboratory uh, won, gravitation, uh, won the Nobel Prize. So that's pretty exciting, too. Um, and, and you say it was a, it was a brilliant uh, firework show that accompanied this uh, neutron star collision. Why was it so important that you could see it as well as, uh, well, hear the gravitational waves, I suppose? Uh, the, the idea behind what's known as multi-messenger astronomy is to be able to use the different kinds of information that cataclysmic astrophysical events such as neutron star collisions give you to be able to give you a complete picture of what happened. So the gravitational waves uh, are very good at looking at what happens uh, before the merger occurs as the objects are sort of spinning around one another and they're getting closer together. And then they collide and produce this sort of final blast of gravitational waves. And then the light show takes over. So very soon after that, in our case, it was about 1.7 seconds, um, 
a gamma ray burst was was observed by the Fermi telescope and also by the uh, Integral uh, Network. And um, then after that, because of the nature of these collisions, what happens is you know these these objects are moving at, at very very fast speeds when they collide, approximately a third of the speed of light, and they produce a huge amount of uh, of nuclear material, and that. That leads to a lot of interesting physical processes, but it also leads to the production of X-rays, of, of light, of, of visible light, of infrared light, and even eventually radio. So by studying these different colors, if you will, or different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, you, you can get a better understanding of, of what happens after a neutron star collides. And one of the things that has come out of this is this is, a, this is an event that astronomy, or astronomers call a kilonova. All right? And it is thought to be, and we now know based on the uh, observations, that this is where most of the heavy elements in the universe comes from. So, so the, the gold that you, that you wear on your wedding ring or the... the the, the platinum or, or uranium that all that all came from a collision much like this and you know until we had seen that before that was uh, not possible and you needed both the gravitational waves and the and the uh, the uh, electromagnetic astronomy to be able to to be able to tell that story this august it was the first time that uh, ligo ran alongside um, the, the two observatories at ligo ran alongside a third observatory of virgo in italy um, why has it taken so long to, to bring all three of them together? Um, so that's correct. The, the LIGO observatories started our run, actually, our first run in uh, September of 2015. We, we were in our second run, um, which started uh, November of 2016. Uh, Virgo, which is the observatory in Italy, uh, started a little bit late. And the reason for that is simply their schedule for construction. So both interferometers had just come, or both LIGO and Virgo had just come through a major upgrade where we uh, uh, made major changes in the case of LIGO we completely rebuilt the interferometer uh, and we had a schedule for doing that uh, and that schedule had us operating in late 2015 uh, Virgo's schedule just by virtue of the way their money you know funding a lot of this is driven by you know if you have the funding to actually uh, do the work uh, the way their schedule work is they didn't come online until until uh, 2017 so uh, and the thing I'll point out is, and it's true for both LIGO and Virgo, is that these are incredibly complex uh, and incredibly delicate uh, instruments. And and when you when you design them and put them together, you don't always get what you want. And you have to spend a lot of time trying to um, sort of understand the underlying problems and the underlying what we call them noises that exist in the interferometer and, and try to beat them down. So, so it's a it's a it's a really complicated business. And um, uh, but it was fortunate that LIGO and Virgo were actually operating at the same time because we wouldn't have seen this uh, um, this Kilanova event without without having Virgo and the two LIGO detectors. So is the end goal to have all three running alongside each other together and working as one? That the end goal is to have is uh, the the two LIGO detectors, the Virgo detector. Uh, there is a detector now under construction in Japan called Kagra, and uh, we're working on a detector in India. Uh, the Kagra detector hopefully will come online in 2019, uh, perhaps a little earlier. The Virgo, uh, the the LIGO India detector in the mid mid middle of the next decade. So the idea is to have them all actually working together because when you have them all working together. You can actually do a lot better than even just LIGO and Virgo can do to, to sort of identify the, the spot in the sky where, where the uh, gravitational waves came from. 
Um, and also, it was only running for a month altogether, and you discovered, uh, I think, at least two two waves. Is this going to be, you know, a relatively common occurrence now um, that we're going to find these waves, or, or were we just lucky? Uh, so I would I would say that Virgo is is was very lucky is that they came on in the right time. All right, they came, they were only on for a month, and in that month, two major discoveries were made. One was a black hole. Uh, merger. The other was this Kilanova binary neutron star merger event. So, so there was an element of luck to it. But I will say that that we now know because of all of the black holes that we collisions that we've seen, and the even the one binary neutron star collision sort of tells us how often we expect to see these events. And right now, for example, LIGO is not running. Virgo is not running. We're in this uh, process we call it of commissioning and upgrading. So we're trying to make our instruments even more sensitive. And the hope is that when we come back online, we'll be seeing a black hole collision every month, maybe even a little bit uh, more frequently than that, and a binary neutron star collision probably maybe every half a year or something like that. So, so the idea is to really push the sensitivity so that we can make these kinds of detections more frequently because the more times you see them, the more information you can sort of aggregate the information and, and you learn a lot more about the underlying astrophysics of these, uh, of these processes. So what can we expect to see from uh, LIGO and the world of gravitational waves in general um, in 2018? Uh, not much. <laughs> so I, I, I hate to say that, but during 2018, for most of the year, probably up until maybe September, perhaps even October, uh, we will be in this mode where we're tuning up our instruments, where we're trying to make them better. So, so there will there will not be any. It is unlikely that there will be major discoveries during that time. It is possible because we do run our instruments uh, when we're in this commissioning mode or tuning mode, and and if we do see something, of course, we'll we'll uh, we'll report it, but. We won't go back online until the end of, of next year, like I said, in the fall of 2018. And at that point, then the excitement might start to happen again. So again, we're we're quite confident that we're going to be seeing more and more of these black hole collisions. Um, uh, and that's interesting because they tell us about where these black holes come from. Uh, be great to see a binary neutron star collision. What we're the thing that we're really after now that we haven't seen and they should exist is a neutron star black hole merger. All right, that's something that they should be out there, uh, and and that will produce a different kind of gravitational wave. And so that's something that we're really interested in. It's quite possible that we'll be able to see gravitational waves from isolated uh, neutron stars um, just due to the, the, they spin around and as they spin, if they have little mountains, that's that's a poor analogy, but it gives you an idea um, that, that they'll produce gravitational waves. These are very, very weak emitters. Uh, it takes a long time to search for them. Could see something like that. And if we're really lucky, uh, if a supernova goes off in our galaxy, and just happens to pass the gravitational waves from the supernova happen to pass through uh, our detectors when when we're running. Well, we might be able to see that too. So, so a number of different sort of uh, astrophysical targets that we're after. Hmm. Well, at least the next year I'll give the, uh, the the science guys some time to to look at all of the data that they took. Um, oh, we need of a the break. Last yeah, year. <laughs> we do. We need a break. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for talking to us. It sounds like it's been an amazing year for gravitational waves and it's only going to get better. So thank you very much, David. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so for my pick of 2017 as uh, kind of more of a collection of little picks, but something we've heard a lot more 
about this year is human spaceflight, more chatter, a bit more planning, a little more, dare I say it, posturing as well. But <laughs> there seems to be a feeling that we're kind of moving towards something now. I mean, do you guys get that sense as well? Mm, yes. It's For years, people have saying, let's go to Mars. Um, but it does seem like people are actually getting their act together to do it. Having some more concrete ideas. And again, we've had this kind of whole chat about, let's go back to the moon. And I think that's been going on basically mm. since the India Pie program. Mm. One thing that happened um, actually last night, which is the 11th of December, the time of recording, uh, the anniversary of Apollo 17, no less, US President Donald Trump has signed a new space policy directive, which officially directs NASA to return to the moon as a stepping stone to Mars. Mm. Uh, to quote his directive, this time we will not only plant our flag and leave our footprints, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars and perhaps someday to many worlds beyond. Now... At this point, it means very little in the sense that there are no kind of concrete details and there's a massive funding shortfall which is addressed by a single line um, saying that work towards a new directive will be reflected in NASA's fiscal year 2019 budget request. Mm. But it does mark a step change from uh, the Obama administration. US President Barack Obama in 2010 said... Um, I understand that some believe we should attempt to return to surface moon first, as previously planned, but I just have to say pretty bluntly here, we've been here before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I mean, what do you guys think? Moon, Mars? It's one of those things which it's a big um, thing of contention over in the US, especially amongst the the, the political circles. Um, There's there's an argument in both ways, which is, you know, if you can go to the moon, um, you can practice setting up a a permanent station you can practice long haul flights before you send somebody on a two year flight to go over to Mars Mm. where they may or may not come back Um, so you can use it as a sort of stepping stone Uh, there's a lot of people though that conversely say it's it's a waste of resources you know Um, you can practice doing all of those things on the ISS or going to an asteroid or something, um, we should be forging new ground. Well, what funny you should mention about practice, have uh, have you heard of the Deep Space Gateway, which is, again, something gaining traction this year? Mm. Yeah. It is a proposed cislunar space station which uh, has been potentially will be developed by NASA and Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. Cislunar mm. meaning it'll just it'll sit between Earth and the Moon. Mm. But... That potentially could be a staging post for future missions, whether that's down to the moon itself and the idea of forming this permanent colony or um, as a kind of a launch post into deep space. And potentially actually could be where they would even assemble the also in development deep space transport which I'm sure you can guess where that's going to go. Yeah. Mm. Deep space? (laughs) (laughs) Mars, especially. Um, I I do think that if we are going to go back to the Mars, we need to stay there for a bit, rather than just, you know, have a bimble about. Did I say Mars? I meant the moon. (laughs) If we're going to go back to the moon, we should stay there for a bit, rather than just bimble about pick up some rocks and come home. Well, I'm going to say, if you're going to bimble about on Mars, that's quite an endeavour just for a bimble. I know. <laughs> but yeah, there's also been lots of kind of um, discussions about uh, the potential for, on the, the lunar far side, that there's, you know, it could be like uh, ice water and, you know, that, mm. that could be a potential um, resource. I mean, yeah, usually when, I mean, the kind of few prominent voices talking about um, going to Mars, you know, notably Buzz Aldrin this year has been kind of... Uh, talking about it once again, and it does seem that like, the moon 
kind of a permanent base on the moon is most of the time put forward uh, as a kind of stepping stepping stone to it. But I mean, I, I guess we're we're kind of seeing a, a lot of the research that that will go towards uh, a potential journey to Mars. We're already kind of seeing with the experiments in the International Space Station in terms of things like you know mm. growing their own um, vegetables and. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, Scott Kelly's year-long mission. That Scott kind of Kelly, thing. yeah, yeah, very definitely. Lots of work going on about um, how astronauts will survive trip. We'll come on to that in a minute. But you know, just this idea of Mars again and gone there. SpaceX founder Elon Musk has his very own definite ideas about mm. Mars, and I think it's one of his estimates it could be as soon as twenty twenty two. Yeah, he's, he's always very ambitious with his guideline uh, with his deadlines. <laughs> he is, yep. Um, but then I think was it in forty to a hundred. Years he can get a permanent colony there. That doesn't sound right. Mm. I don't know. It's quite difficult to kind of know which um, ambitious projects to kind of take seriously. Mm. Because it's, it's one of those things yeah. that if Apollo proved that if you throw enough money at it, you can make it happen. So I think that's going to be the question. So where's the money come from? Where's the money coming mm. from? I mean, there's only one thing that. Um, in April, again, the US President Donald Trump, he dialed up to the International Space Station um, and he asked them to go to Mars more quickly. And I think it was kind of joking, but he was kind of saying, oh, we want that to be done in my first term or if not my second. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know where that right. sits now we've got this new <laughs> space policy directive. Um, but it's still quite an exciting time. And beyond that, you know, NASA is still developing its, spatial, its space launch system uh, close to the home China is still working on its Harmony of the Heavens space station, the one that could eventually, you know, <laughs> fly alongside the ISS and perhaps mm. re not replace, but yeah. you know, it could become the focal point if and when the ISS finally uh, reaches the end of its life. So, to find out more about the ongoing challenges astronauts themselves face when they're doing these projects and when they might go to Mars, I um, spoke to Libby Jackson, who is the author of A Galaxy of Her Own, Amazing Stories of Women in Space, and also um, Human Space Site and Microgravity Program Manager for the UK Space Agency. Libby, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Oh, no problem. Happy, happy to be a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you can start... Could you tell us a bit about what happens to the human body in space, how spending time in a microgravity environment affects our bodies physiologically? Mm, of course. The human body is ever so adaptable. And as we've spent uh, more and more time living and working in space on the International Space Station, we have learned so much about what happens. Uh, and whilst Tim Peake was up in space and he got back uh, a year and a half ago now, he overlapped with Scott Kelly and Mikhail Kornienko. And they both spent a year in space. So we've got even more data now. Really, your entire body just adapts to living in a weightless environment. So all the things that it doesn't need to do, it gets rid of. So you find your bones and your muscles deteriorate because you just don't need to use use them when, you, when you're floating around. Uh, your fluid through the body equilibriates. So uh, here on Earth, we're used to gravity pulling us downwards all the time and all the blood uh, sort of pulling downwards. And so it sort of equalizes through the body. You get puffy faces, puffy noses. The spinal fluid um, seems to, to perhaps increase in pressure. It's something we still don't fully understand, but certainly um, your, your intracranial pressure may change. And that may be linked to something we do know that happens, which is that your eyesight um, sometimes changes, uh, perhaps because there's more fluid pressing in the eyeballs, so they change shape. Um, all of this 
is is really fine if all you want to do is stay in space. If if you were going to spend the rest of your days floating in a microgravity environment, um, you'd be fine. Your body is adapting to that. But uh, in any space mission, be it uh, going around the Earth for for six months or a year, or perhaps one day even going to the moon uh, or to Mars, you ultimately want to land somewhere and then uh, experience gravity again and function. And that's why astronauts on the space station do two hours of exercise every day, about an hour of cardio and an hour of of what we call lifting weights. But they, of course, don't lift weights. They use hydraulic weights. mechanisms to, to for pressure so so they, they exercise their muscles um and and that's all to try and minimize that loss of of bone and, and muscle conditioning so that when they land back on earth they're able uh, to get out the spacecraft to function to to survive that re-entry um or to or to enjoy that re-entry a little bit more um usually um landings are planned and there's a there's a crew waiting for you but should there be a, an emergency and you need to come back to earth in a hurry you might be landing in the in the middle of the kazakh step uh with nobody around to come and rescue you and so it's very important that the astronauts can in that situation uh, look after themselves and they couldn't do it if they did no exercise and all these changes you're talking about are they all temporary changes like the body's so good at adapting to space can it readapt back to earth generally yes it, it takes some time um it takes about a year for your your bone density to get back to to where it was uh, after you've been in space but some people do experience uh, changes that seem to be more permanent be that eyesight um there's been a few astronauts i hear of who who have had um, changes in their um intracranial pressure that haven't um recovered after after returning to earth so the body is very adaptable but uh, there are sometimes uh, things that will have um lasting impacts on you and that's something that the space agencies are really looking at um fr- from a health perspective but it also becomes an occupational health issue um if you're going to send an astronaut into space and and they come back and and they've then got uh, things that are affecting them for the rest of their life that that's something their employers want to take care of the other thing um that that you can't undo is the increased radiation exposure. So when you go to the International Space Station you're still within the Van Allen belts you're still protected by the Earth's magnetic sphere from from all the cosmic and the solar radiation. But you still do get an increased dose um and that the space agencies NASA, European Space Agency and so on they um do have levels and and there are sort of lifetime doses that they like their astronauts uh, to stay under. But if you were to go on to Mars you you'd be exceeding that um hugely because you would leave that protection of our magnetic field and and that's a challenge uh, when we look at Mars that we're still looking at overcoming. Well, that's a nice way to kind of bring into it because uh, you know one idea we're hearing a lot more about um in the past few months is this idea of sending humans to Mars. I mean it's not a new idea of course, but it's suddenly one we seem to be start talking about a bit more a bit more kind of definite plans about it. So you know what challenges do we face actually getting there is radiation really the only one radiation is is one of them uh, but there are others um a trip to mars um with current propulsion technology um because of the way the planets uh, work and the, the planets line up uh, you tend to be looking at a, a 6 to 9 6 to 9 month um journey there um and then you'd have to stay on the surface for about a year before you had another 6 to 9 month journey back uh, because you you just can't leave mars when earth is in the wrong place we just haven't got the propulsion so you need to 
uh, sort out the radiation, if we can do anything to sort out the propulsion um, to make us get there faster, to be more efficient, because we have to take everything there, that will help enormously. We, we, we would be spending, as I say, perhaps a year on the surface, and you need a lot of things to support a crew for a year on the surface, and all of that has to get there. So propulsion's a problem. When you get there, you have to land. And Martian atmosphere is much thinner than Earth atmosphere. And, and we've not been very good at landing uh, probes and, and rovers there so far. It, it's about a 50-50 um, success rate that we've got. And one of the things is understanding how the Martian atmosphere works, how parachutes work, um, what other landing uh, technologies we might have. Um, so that's still something that, that people are looking at. On top of all of that... If you're going to send humans to Mars, you're, you're um, at the mercy of the laws of physics. We communicate at the speed of light. Uh, radio waves um, are how we, we send messages backwards and forwards. When Earth and Mars are at their closest, um, the one-way light travel time is about four minutes. At their most distant, that's over 20 minutes. And so the ability for us to send instant messages backwards and forwards between a crew uh, on the surface and Earth is, is going to be impossible. So your mission control setup that we are so used to here, that we have looking after the crews on the space station uh, 24 hours a day, they won't be able to help instantly uh, the crew. They won't be able to help the crew instantly in the way that they can now. And the crew who are on the surface of Mars will be cut off um, in some ways from, from every, everybody back on Earth. They'll be very isolated. And how will we deal with those challenges? They'll certainly still be able to communicate, but they won't be able to have a telephone call or a radio conversation uh, like they would now. Then you've got things like food to consider, um, uh, the, the, bio, the um, planetary protection aspects. We're, we're sending humans there um, to go and study life. And, and did Mars support life? Does it support it now? But if we send humans, we're sending life there. And, and what does that mean? So there are an awful lot of challenges uh, to overcome. But we are in a time, as you say, where we're starting to, to do things. I think Mars might just be getting closer down the horizon. Yeah, it certainly feels like it. But they would have to be entirely self-sufficient as well. It's not just the like, not being able to communicate instantly. It's like if you're... I don't know, a water purifier, let's say, breaks, mm. then you've got to have the ability to fix that, surely. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're looking at, can you have closed life support systems? We will need something like that. We'll need to be able to grow food. You can't take a year's, of, a year's supply of tinned food. Um, 3D printing, additive manufacturing, that's likely to come into play so that you can take a supply of, of material and then print the tools you need or the parts you need when you need them, rather than taking every single spare part, uh, which would be much better um, for, for the mass that you need to take there. Um, so that's that's definitely um, an issue, and it's, it's something that, that's being looked at now. And, um, you know, in the context of everything you just said, what do you think is going to be the biggest next big challenge, I guess, for human space? Because Mars is kind of the, the end goal, I guess. Uh -huh. What's the next thing we have to overcome to kind of make that a bit more of a reality? Well, it's a really exciting time in the world of human spaceflight. I, I don't think we've had uh, as an exciting time for, for quite some years. 
the International Space Station is going to be in orbit until 2024. It might get extended. Um, but the, the space agencies of the world, NASA, European Space Agency, Roscosmos and JAXA and so on, um, are starting to look to, to low Earth orbit becoming a commercial environment. So they're starting to say to companies, uh, you, you need to look after this. And that allows them to free up the resources to then uh, cast our, our sights and our goals back out, um, outside of low Earth orbit. The Deep Space Gateway, as it's being called, is being discussed now. NASA have, have uh, said they're working towards it. Uh, the European Space Agency are looking at it. And uh, hopefully in a few years' time at, at um, the ministerial coming up, we, we might see um, commitments and agreements being made there. Uh, and it's something that everybody's looking at, saying, yes, we want to build this. The Orion spacecraft, which is a NASA capsule with a European Space Agency uh, service module um, is is being built, um, and that will go has to go somewhere, and it will likely go to the deep space gateway. And this little mini space station, with with just a few modules, nothing like the size of the space station at the International Space Station, would allow crew to go and visit for for thirty days, uh, you know, a month, two months, three months. Um, explore, uh, learn what it's like to live outside of those radiation belts, uh, allow us to do science that, that we can't do here in low Earth orbit, but that we can do out there. And then this space station, uh, this deep space gateway, um, would act as a, as a stepping stone. It would be a launching off point for sorties uh, down to the uh, lunar surface and then also um, onto Mars. So, so this stepping stone, the deep space gateway, um, does start to enable these things. And as I say, that the Orion spacecraft is being built, it's going through testing. Uh, the Deep Space Gateway is being very seriously discussed at the minute. Um, and if all of that happens and, and everybody um, agrees to do it, suddenly we will be looking at humans leaving low Earth orbit for the first time since 1972. Um, and that just, uh, you know, changes everything. It's a, it's a hugely exciting time. It's, it's exploration going out there. But it's all being done because uh, it has good scientific and economic benefits. And, and we're exploring because we know uh, that we will find out things that help everybody back on Earth. That was a hugely exciting time, isn't it? Um, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> just, just one final question then. Do you feel that we need to go back to the moon before we can go on to Mars so we have that kind of stepping stone? It's a great area of discussion at the moment. Um, the European Space Agency's Director General is, is, is saying, um, is proposing an idea of a moon village, something perhaps a bit more permanent. It, it's a concept in his mind. Um, the, the UK is, is looking at these things and we, and we do see that a stepping stone to the moon is, is going to be important because it will allow us it will allow us to test out technologies, learn how to to do things um, like in situ resource utilization, um, like landing technologies, just just going somewhere and, and and trying out some of the concepts there in in a relatively safer environment. It, it's only a few days back to Earth, and it, it could only be a, you know a few hours potentially back to the, the deep space gateway. Uh, on to Mars is a huge step, and I think that the the Moon does offer um, the ability to trial some of those technologies. But if we go and start colonizing it, if we really said no, we want a permanent base there, uh, what we would see is that in the end, resources are finite, money is finite. That would um, sort of drain, I think, a lot of uh, resources, and we would find it very difficult to do that and go on to Mars. And Mars is where the the exciting science is. The the question of 
is or was their life on Mars. Um, that is, 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 you know, one of the, the real drivers for, for sending humans there because they will be able to, to look at the, the, the surface, the rocks, um, in a way that um, rovers are, are superb, but are, you know, it gives us a different perspective. And, and by going on to Mars, that's something that then humans can do. That's brilliant, Libby. Thank you so much. No problem. Now we have a 2017 retrospective edition of News Bingo. I've got seven questions based on some of the biggest news stories and events of 2017. You guys both have uh, bits of paper in front of you so you can write your answers down, not spoil it for each other. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you guys at home will play along too. So, shall we get on with it? Here we go. Okay. We're starting right at the beginning of the year. In January, the Japanese space agency JAXA began testing its KITE mission, one of many in development to tackle the burgeoning problem of defunct satellites in orbit. Space junk. Mm Mm-hmm. What's it going to use to gather the space junk up? I think I know this one. Let's hear right. it. You got it, Ian? Yeah, I don't know. So my answer is a, a ridiculous answer. Um, I, I think <laughs> it's a giant fishing net, essentially. Oh, it's almost there. Okay. Well, mm. I mean, mine was supposed to be a bit of a comedy answer. I've written a, a massive net and a, and a magnet. <laughs> you see, you're both kind of there. It's a, it's a, it's the, it's a lavatory oh, magnet. Is yeah. it? Is it the, the? It's just a wire yeah. or something, and it's going to go through and pick up all of the the like flecks of paint and debris and like yeah. the tiny bits. It's a electromagnetic fishing line. That was it. <laughs> Essentially, huh. it's um, going to basically like imagine a whip. I'm going to throw it at Ian, and it's going to latch on him, <laughs> and then I'm going to tug him out of orbit. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Yeah, and then he's going to burn up. <laughs> Bye, Ian. Um, well, I wasn't too far off with a massive net and a magnet. No, I've given you both half a point for Yay. that. Yay! Um, moving on to something that, well, our readers will know. In April... The Scarlet Night TV show celebrated its 60th birthday. And believe it or not, the TV show is older than the Space Age itself. But what did Patrick talk about on that very first episode? Oh, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I should know this, because I wrote about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a way of something to write about. Okay. It was a celestial object. I can half remember. Ian? Um, a bit of a guess. This might be coming from the recesses of memory, or it might just be a guess. Um, I, I, I suspect it was something like a, a tour around the Orion constellation, something like that. It was not as it was. I think it was a comet of some description. It was, and, and its name. It was. It had a double barrel name, and I think it was AR. It is. Yeah. Can you get any closer? No. No. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> Comet Arendroland. Yes, that, that one. That's the one. Yes. <laughs> Hmm. I think our readers would have trumped you. No. I would say so, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Hmm. Cassini mission. Yeah. We talked about it earlier. Came to its end in September, not with a whimper but a bang, when it was crashed deliberately into Saturn. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, no, this one. Come on, then. Or Ian first. Um, because you have bodies like Enceladus that could potentially harbour life because they have salty liquid water, you can't risk uh, contaminating the Saturnian system with a human-made object. As I can see, you've got precisely the same, Dan, yes. and you're both exactly right. Yeah, they don't, you don't um, want to go back to Enceladus and then find a bunch of human bacteria left by Cassini. Funny enough, this is one of the um, 
the questions raised by Elon Musk saying he's going to send his Tesla Roadster to mm-hmm. Mars orbit because I don't think Elon Musk technically, or SpaceX technically, has to follow the outer planet kind of protection guidelines. It's Apparently it's okay because he's not actually going to put it into orbit around Mars. He is going to put it into the orbit of Mars. As in around the sun. Ah, uh, okay. And ah. that's okay because the chance of it actually hitting something where it might contaminate. That's not how is, I read that, but is, then it was a tweet, so it's it Yeah, quite, it, it's one of those things that he clarified <coughs> later. Right, okay, that makes much more I sense. I read that this morning. I mean, could he potentially get a car custom-made in one of those, you know, dirt-free, <laughs> sanitized <laughs> well, environments? Well, he owns the company, so probably. Yeah. But it would just be a case of whether he can get that done by later this month. <laughs> <laughs> Something else I discovered quite recently, someone they were building Curiosity, and I think they'd, uh, you know, a Curiosity rover, the one that went to Mars, had to undergo some of the most stringent uh, mm. cleansing processes because it was going to Mars, and that's like, you know, we can't contaminate Mars at all. Yeah. And when after they'd like, done the, the first set and they checked it, it still had like 317, I think it was, types of bacteria on it. And some of those are the most resistant, the ones that survive UV. And yeah, yeah. Life is, life, life doesn't like to die. Life is hardy. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea that, like, you know... <laughs> How long would it take to make a Tesla roaster in those conditions? Quite a while. <laughs> um, back to anniversaries. August marked another 50th. It was the 50th anniversary of the first pulsar being discovered. Pulsars being super dense, ultra compact stars that um, spin rapidly and shoot out beams of radio waves like cosmic lighthouses. Mm-hmm. Who discovered the first one? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Dame Jocelyn Bell. Boom. Yeah. Yep, both right. She was a student at the time, I believe, and then she discovered it with her supervisor yes. at the time. From she's from Northern Ireland as well, so big <laughs> big, big shout out. <laughs> <laughs> um, more anniversaries to come. August and September marked the 40th anniversaries of the twin Voyager spacecraft, two probes that pretty much rewrote textbooks on the outer planets. The last big milestone for this mission was in 2012. What was it? Okay. Door was it really that far along ago? Oh, my goodness. Did you say, um, like, the last big milestone? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're both still <coughs> sending that data. They're both still working. But... The like kind of really big yes. announcement of it was 2012. Okay. You go first, Des. Um <laughs> It crossed over the boundary into interstellar space. Absolutely right. Well, yeah, um, I've written... Voyager ri- 1. I've written it left the solar system. Oh, Ian, that's a point of contention. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, you're absolutely right. It was Voyager 1. did enter into Earth space. Funnily enough, even though I said it happened in 2012, NASA didn't actually find out until 2013 because the instrument that would have detected that had uh, broken many years before. And it was only when a coronal <laughs> mass ejection from the 2012 caught up with it yes. 13 months later they would have tell. The reason why the solar system is a bit of point contention in it is because it depends where you define the end of the solar system. Mm. So some people talk about that as like, oh, you know, the realm of the planets. Um, you could also say it's the sun's influence, which would count as going into interstellar space. But if you're talking about the Oort cloud 
and the orc, you say the orc cloud is the bound of the solar system. I think it's 40,000 years till it gets there. So give it to me straight, Kev. <laughs> You're not getting a point. Oh, come on. <laughs> half a point? You can have half a point, yes. I'll give you that. Thanks, Kev. <laughs> um, question six. In January, again, a famous figure from the world of space passed away. He was best known for something he described as a very dubious and disappointing honour. Who was he and what was he talking about? Oh, no. No, that's, that's right. Yeah, but I can't remember his name. Oh, no. <laughs> Ian, do you know? I think it was the passing of former astronaut uh, Gene Cernan. It was. He was the last man on the moon. Yes. Yes. Um, but I think he liked to be referred to as the most recent man on the moon. Yes, it was, it was, yes. It was definitely the last man on the moon because, I mean, obviously he loved the moon, but it was that, um, the fact that no one had been back that really hurt him. <coughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he passed away on the 16th of January and he was on the moon with Apollo 17, December 1972. Mm -hmm. So finally... In mid-October, astronomers in Hawaii discovered what has been repeatedly described as one of the most elongated cosmic objects known to science. What are they talking about, and why is it special? Do I have to spell it right? Um, if you can spell it, I will give you a bonus point. Ooh, class. There, there might be a few too many <coughs> letters in there. I feel like <laughs> your bigger problem is, can you pronounce it? Uh, no. <laughs> Okay. Ian knows, I think, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's pronounced Oumuamua, um, and it was an asteroid that has reached our solar system from uh, inter interstellar space. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first the first uh, ever such object to be observed. Yeah. Both quite right, yes. The first interstellar asteroid. I mean, long theorised, but much like gravitational yeah. waves never seen and mm. then suddenly so I don't know maybe we'll find more but I don't think it works the same way with interstellar asteroids it, it's one of those things where they reckon about one comes through every year oh really um, but it just it comes through the solar system it but in order to for us to see it it needs to come relatively close because I think I can't remember exactly how dark this thing was but it wasn't exactly obvious it was just because it came right by earth no. Um, well in astronomical terms <coughs> anyway <laughs> do you know that um, SETI are going to examine it this week Cool. Oh, they, can they still see it? Still see it. Green Bank oh. Telescope um, should be able to just pick up faint signals on it, but they are looking for signs of alien technology. Really? <laughs> yeah. Of course cool. they are. Cause There's something heavy. about the shape of it um, that's apparently intrigued them. Hmm. Yes, well, it's supposed to be ten times longer than it is wide or thick. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's very long and thin, kind of sci-fi spaceship-y kind of shape you can imagine it, can't yeah. you? Yeah. Hmm. Like the big yeah. monolith from 2001. Yeah. Um, can I try and spell it and get that bonus point? <laughs> yeah, you can. Okay. Um, there is a little uh, apostrophe before the name starts, and then it's O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A. Hooray! Did I get it? bonus point. Yes! <laughs> I don't know if there was an apostrophe, actually. I hadn't there is, there there is, is an, an apostrophe. apostrophe. You're right. Yes. Do you get an extra bonus point for the, po for the apostrophe? No. No. You can't. Two bonus points. <laughs> Just because I put an extra N in there. Wow. <laughs> um, that bonus <clears throat> point has made all the difference. Ez has come out with a respectable five and a half, whereas Ian's just pipped her with six. 
Yay! Oh, that's not fair. Nice one. <laughs> um, so Ian's buying the champagne later. The perfect end that's to fair. a perfect year. <laughs> <laughs> um, and well done at home if you uh, did better than these two. <laughs> right, Les, you're going to tell me about 2018. So that was a. it's been a fantastic year in 2017, and 2018 it looks like it's going to be even more spectacular. Uh, unfortunately, there's been a couple of missions that have been delayed from 2018, most notably the James Webb Space Telescope, but there's still going to be a lot happening that we could look forward to. Um, NASA will be sending their InSight mission to Mars. ESA and the JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, will be sending BepiColombo to Mercury in October, though that will take a good six years to finally get there. As will the Parker Solar Observatory, which is heading towards the Sun later this year as well. Two missions that have already been on their way for several years, OSIRIS-REx and Hayabusa 2, which are on their way to Ryugu and Bennu, which are two asteroids, and they should get there in about summer this year. There's going to be a whole host of people heading towards the moon, uh, most notably the Chinese space agency, who might be putting the first uh, probe on the dark side of the moon, or rather the far side of the moon, I should say. Can I just interject? Are there actually people heading to the moon? There might be people heading around the moon, according to SpaceX, but they've been a bit quiet on that front for a while. But there'll be there will be lots of probes heading that way um, with the Google Lunar X Prize. Oh yes, of course. Um, we also have two exoplanet missions to look forward to in the form of Chess and Cheops, as well as a whole run of crewed missions. Uh, most excitingly the first ever test flights of the private commercial crew modules from SpaceX and Boeing, which might be making it to the ISS this year. Fingers crossed. So, fingers crossed. And if you want to hear more about that, then you can pick up the uh, January issue. Yes, if you've liked what you've heard on the podcast and want to learn more about space and astronomy, um, do pick up our January issue. Uh, As well as a look ahead at 2018, we're going to be examining 10 of the most mind-boggling space discoveries ever made. Uh, we're going to tell you how to find a planet in the night sky without a map and discover how artificial intelligence could change the nature of astronomical research. Uh, and in this issue's bonus content, um, Scott Kelly uh, has been visiting the, the UK over the past few weeks as we're recording, and we um, got to meet up with him and chat to him, and we managed to record it. So if you want to see that interview... Um, yeah, pick up a copy of the issue, and it's available on the, on the bonus content. Scott Kelly is the ISS astronaut. Of course. The one-year mission, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. March 16th, he touched down back on Earth after spending a year uh, on the ISS. So I spoke to him about um, what it was like to spend a year in space. Um, and also, uh, Ezzy's uh, been talking to someone quite interesting this month, um, which is also included in the bonus content, um, Andy Weir, author of The Martian. Uh, and Ezzy's been talking to him about his new book, uh, Artemis. Awesome. Um, plus, you know, the magazine has our monthly Sky Guide and equipment reviews. BBC Sky Night magazine is available in print and several digital formats. Find out more at skynightmagazine.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Also, for me, says this has been Radio Astronomy. We have been BBC Sky at Night magazine. And uh, all that's left is for us to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. <laughs>